and Anschutz, Chapter 18. The next day after formation, I changed into my civilian clothes and went to military clothing and sales. It's for soldiers by everything, from the digi-camo uniforms to the shiny dress blues they rarely wear. It was always an odd place to see the rags and fabrics of what transformed normal kids into killers and supermen in the eyes of the public. Here the vestments just sat on the shelf like any other commercial item. The army physical training uniforms carry tags that said, proudly made by the blind. The common retort I always heard in my head when I saw it was, to be grudgingly worn by the ignorant. Other parts of our uniforms and equipment were made by convict labor. I often wondered how many people wore the uniform, then got out of the army, then got into trouble, and ended up making the uniforms in prison. I went to the wall where they kept the ranks. I pretended to look at my own rank, specialist, a sham shield, denoting a glorified private who had not yet made sergeant. Then I moved over to the officers' ranks. The Army pays young men and women who've gone to college and suffered through an ROTC, or Officers' Candidate School program, a lot more money than enlisted people. In addition, they are treated much better and handed trust, faith, and respect that most 21-year-old kids don't deserve. I slid a first lieutenant's black bar still in its package up my sleeve and paid for an overpriced backpack on my way out. I would have paid the seven ninety nine for the rank, but I'm pretty sure one simple way they tried to prevent the shenanigans I was up to was to check your military ID at checkout and not sell you any rank higher than what was on your ID card. Today, the Army was going to donate seven ninety nine to a good cause. The next day, I told Gertie I wanted to borrow her ancient car to go fishing. She gave me a funny look then fished her keys out of the coffee table bowl. The car roared and sputtered in the far right lane of the Audubon for four hours. I listened to Eric Reckless on my iPod, riding towards the French border where they had Anna. Lanjstuhl Regional Medical Center is where the wounded and the dead from Afghanistan and Iraq are shipped until they can be stabilized or sterilized for the living. I parked the car and found the nearest hospital bathroom where I pulled my specialist rank off my chest and put it in my pocket. In the toilet stall, I gave myself a commission as a first lieutenant in the United States Army. I pressed the black rectangle home on its Velcro square with a satisfying crunching sound. I walked out of the restroom and searched for a directory board. Of course, it didn't say morgue anywhere on it, so I just rode an elevator to the lowest level I could. A sergeant first class, who looked old enough to have fought in Vietnam, got on the elevator with me and rode it part of the way, giving me a morning, sir. I stared at the rank on my chest and wondered how just a little square of fabric on your uniform could change how you were treated so much. What I was doing was highly illegal, I was sure of that. One of the small and lowly privates impersonating a big, important officer would remind the brass how little difference there was between us, and they didn't want to be reminded of such embarrassing realities. I imagined the basement would be a jumble of water pipes and steam tunnels. However, it looked like all the other floors with vinyl tiles and photos of dead heroes on the wall. I wandered around for a while until I found a German national cleaning one of the bathrooms. This was even better than asking an army person, since this poor lady could really care less about my unusual question. Entschuldigung, uh, Voist. How do you say morgue, I thought. Then the phrase hit me. It was one of the first audible things Anna ever said to me. Totenvolksen. Where are the dead people? The cleaning lady frowned for a second, leaning on her mop. Der Platz für Toten? I tried again. Her eyes lit up, and she gave a knowing nod. Come, she said, urging me to follow her with a waving hand as she walked down the hall, leaving her cleaning stuff by the drinking fountain. She stopped the point down a corridor. Links, she urged, shaking her left hand to the side. Danke, I said, passing her, thankful that this had worked better than I thought it would. Down the hall to the left, a plastic placard outside of two swinging doors said, Mortuary Affairs, No Unauthorized Personnel. I took a deep breath and found myself giving a good luck rub on my rank, hoping it would give me the clout I needed to do what I needed to do. If all else failed, I would cut and run. 
The door swung open in front of me into a corridor where a specialist jockeying a desk grinned happily at a movie playing on his laptop. I walked up to him and leaned on the desk. He glanced from the screen up at me in surprise. How you doing? I asked casually. Good, sir, he said, his voice cracking as he slammed the laptop closed. Good, I said. I waited casually for a second, then said, I'm here to see the remains of the body recovered from Berkberg. He blinked at me quizzically. Crap, I thought. He doesn't know what I'm talking about. I sighed, realizing I might have to up the ante. Where's your NCO? I asked, not really wanting to deal with an NCO. They might know what to do, but they also might be squared away enough to actually start asking me questions that I couldn't answer about why I wanted to see the body. I'd intentionally planned my trip around lunchtime in hopes of avoiding a higher up. I'll get her on the phone, he said, rocketing a hand out to the desk phone. Nah, I said, amazed at my own casualness. If you can find out where those remains are, I'll get in and do my thing, and you can go back to... I cocked my head at the laptop. Your work. I gave a conspiratorial grin. He returned it. Roger, sir. He stood up and led me past another door that read, No admittance. I held my breath, hoping I would be able to find the body. I was prepared for many scenarios, but had not considered the possibility of them not being able to find it. I was ready to crush resistance using my magic lieutenant powers, or perhaps slip the five twenty-euro notes I had ready to bribe into someone's hand if need be, and, as a last resort, I was ready to run like a banshee out of there. In the end, it was all looking unnecessary, as I was stuck with a bored enlisted man who couldn't care less, and just wanted me to go away. I saw a few autopsy tables that were empty and spotlessly clean. Then I saw the human filing cabinet doors along the wall I'd anticipated seeing. The specialist picked up a clipboard hanging from a nail in the wall and began to sift through it. Please don't ask for paperwork, I thought to myself. What was the name of the decedent again, he asked. I don't think there was one, I said. I believe it was unidentified, mostly decomposing bones, I hinted. Oh, yeah, he nodded in recognition. Bones. He put the clipboard back and led me into a little alcove full of flat drawers. He consulted another clipboard by the drawers and hummed ominously. My mind raced. So close, but now I wouldn't find it, or they wouldn't have it, and he'll call his idiotic NCO, and she'll start grilling me because she won't know where it is and want to bluster me away. Then the barking match used by all stupid army people would ensue. When in doubt, when unsure, don't admit wrong, don't admit failure. Just yell, scream, and threaten until one side backed down, or called the inspector general, or whatever course would lead to nothing getting done. Sign here, he said, proffering the clipboard. I blinked in surprise, then gave a fake signature. He pulled open the top drawer. A skull stared up at me with the familiar black orbs. Her bones were laid out neatly before her, arms and legs and toes, ribs sticking out in hook-shaped arcs, cleaned and cared for. Do you need her file, he asked. If you got it, I said, not really caring, but figured if I had it, and they didn't, maybe it would leave less evidence behind if anyone ever asked about the body after me. Thanks, I said, as I fished a camera out of my bag. I won't be long if you want to just chill out front, I said, trying not to sound too hopeful. He nodded and left the room. I put the camera back into my bag. I had brought it out only to help add to the story that I was there to photograph the remains for study if anyone had asked what I needed to see them for. I stared down at the skull and bones for longer than I intended to. Eventually I did reach out with a bare finger and touch one of the rib bones. Cold and dry. Anna. I heard myself whisper. I stared at what was left of the soft-footed goddess for a long time, listening to the hum of the HVAC system. Then I pulled a black trash bag from the expensive backpack I had bought at the military store and delicately placed every piece of the girl I had loved into it, worried I was somehow violating her by my lack of ceremony. I had to tell myself that I was doing the right thing and to hurry up. 
I just wanted to thank you for listening. I hope that you like the story. Right now, this podcast is available on YouTube. It's available on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. So if you're not already listening to the story in your preferred format, please look at the links below and find what you need. If you go onto Facebook and do a search for Keystrokes Amid Cobwebs, you can find our Facebook page and learn more about the show and also potential future shows. So please get on there so we can become friends. And finally, I'm really looking for feedback. Do you like the story? Do you hate it? What are some things you enjoyed or things you would change? Um, if you can, please give me an email at keystrokesamidthecobwebs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Thank you.